And so over the past several months, we have been walking through what is perhaps the most well-known sermon of Jesus. And, and in this sermon, Jesus is casting vision and he's shaping disciples. He's shaping those who belong to him, shaping those who are part of his kingdom. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is coming to the end of this sermon and he is reiterating some important truths about discipleship as well as bringing a strong warning to his disciples. See, after all he has taught them about what it means to follow him and all he has taught them about what it means to belong to the kingdom, he's now making something very explicit that he is more or less implied throughout his message to them. Discipleship is hard. It is a narrow and difficult path. He's also being very explicit with his warning that there will be false teachers that come and try to deceive you. They will try to take you away from faith in Christ. Because make no mistake, following Jesus is not easy. If you've been following Jesus for five minutes, you know it is not easy. It is a path of self-denial. It is a path of turning from sin. It is a path of sacrifice and risk. It's a path of serving others and giving yourself that the gospel might shine into the brokenness and the mess of our world. And make no mistake, there are those that want nothing more than to wreck your faith and will try to deceive you into following something other than the true Jesus and the true gospel. And the scary thing is, is that there are probably some of those people in this room this morning and so we need to be aware. We need to be honest. This is kind of all cards on the table, truth from Jesus saying discipleship is hard and there will be people among you that try to deceive you. And so that's what we're going to unpack this morning in this passage. Two points that I want to look at. One, the difficulty of discipleship. And two, the danger of deception. So first, let's look at the difficulty of discipleship. So to describe this difficulty, Jesus uses the images of gates and paths. That's what he tells his disciples, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So if you ever tried to pass through a narrow gate whether going through maybe to a, a ball game or, or maybe like a, a narrow gate in a fence or, or entering some building. So when Mindy and I lived on the East Coast, uh, we would often take the, the subway system around D.C. And one of the places we'd often take it is the airport. And, and one of the things that I, I hated about taking the metro to the airport is getting my baggage through that gate and so I would typically have my backpack, and I'd have both of our luggages, because I'm a gentleman, and, and I would be walking through, and so what I need to do is, is take my Metro Pass and scan it, and there's this little gate that would open, and I had to get my body and both my pieces of luggage through that before the, the thing shut. And I had like three seconds. And, and typically, I would, I would get through, but once in a while, I'd get through about this way, and then boom, I'd get caught in my back piece of luggage, and it just, you know, I'd say some choice words under my breath, and I have to, like, pick it up and grab it, and there's people behind me looking at me like I'm an idiot, and like, come on, get moving. And the worst thing they would call me is a tourist. So I'm like, I'm not a tourist, I'm a local. (laughs) 
And, and sometimes, really, to make myself feel better, when, when we would travel without our luggage, when we were just going into the city, I would watch the tourists try to get through the gate and say, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm not that bad. <laughs> but here, here is the reality. Trying to pass through a narrow gate, you can't take a lot of baggage. You, you, the more you, you try to take through that gate, the less likely you are to get through. You, you, you have to acknowledge that I can't bring a bunch of stuff with me through this narrow gate. And so if you want to pass through a narrow gate, here's what you have to do. You have to accept the narrowness. You have to humble yourself. And you have to let go of most of your baggage. You have to let go of that baggage. Following Jesus is like a narrow gate. You have to accept that it is narrow. You have to accept that you have to let go of baggage. And so following Jesus means we have to humble ourselves and let go of the baggage we carry. We have to die to ourselves. We, have, we don't get to follow Jesus and hold on to the baggage of our sin. We don't get to hold on to our anger and our pride and our lust and our fear and our anxiety. We don't get to hold on to our agendas and our kingdoms. We don't get to hold on to the things that we build our security on. We don't get to hold on to our righteousness and our good works. You see, the, Nate, the gate is purposefully narrow to force us to let go of us so we can be transformed into something new. Jesus also likens following him to a hard and an easy path. And those of you who like to hike, well, there's hiking through the woods on a, on a nice, level, spacious, uh, easy path. That's like most hiking in Nebraska. You don't have to necessarily pay attention to where you're going because the, the pathway, well, it's wide, and there's not a lot of dangers and hills, and, and you can just kind of stroll along and be okay. That's a great way to hike. That's a fun way to hike. You can enjoy yourself. But that's not the kind of hiking that Jesus likens the Christian life to. Following Jesus is like hiking in the mountains, maybe of Colorado, on a very narrow, difficult path. The path is so narrow, you have to pay attention to where you're going because if you step off to the side just a little bit, you could fall down a ravine. You have to watch for holes or branches or, or other obstacles that are dangerous on the path. The, the ups and downs of the path aren't just kind of this leisurely little stroll through a field or little rolling hills. It's deep valleys and high mountains. And so it's a strenuous change of pace. And those of you who hiked in the mountains of Colorado, you, you, you know what this is like. That is the kind of path that Jesus is speaking of here. A narrow and a challenging path. There is difficulty, there is change, there is toil, there is hardship. This path following Jesus is humbling because very quickly we realize we're not awesome. We, we can't do this on our own. The things Jesus calls us into aren't possible in our own strength. And so when we walk this path, we're often tempted to quit or, or to find an easier path. We're, we're often tempted to look for a, a route that, that isn't as treacherous or isn't as difficult or I don't have to pay it as a, much attention to. Following Jesus means we have to exercise caution we have to exercise self-awareness. You have to pay attention to where you're walking because there are many things that could trip up your walk. 
And so as we consider what the difficulty of following Christ is, he's reminding us here at the end of the sermon, enter through the narrow gate. What, what does that look like? What, what is he kind of calling to mind here? Well, let's, let's just summarize and, and trace back through where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount and, and understand what it means to walk in this narrow gate and on this difficult path. Well, a, a wide gate in an easy way, an easy path would be to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm good and I'm hardworking and I'm a moral person. Look, I don't cheat. I don't lie. I respect people. Hey, I even attend church. I have theological knowledge. I know the Bible. I can quote scripture. Like, like I'm, a, I'm a good person outwardly. I'll, I do all the right things. And so I'm good with God. But Jesus is after something so much deeper, something much more difficult because the narrow gate, the hard way, is being poor in spirit. It is, it is recognizing I am absolutely in need. There is nothing I can do. It's not my works. It's not my righteousness. It's, it's not in my ability to be right with God and to save myself and to restore what is broken in me. I have to be humble. You see, the wide gate in the easy way would be to say, hey, I don't murder I don't take revenge on people. I don't lash out and harm people. So I'm okay. Ah, but Jesus is after something so much deeper. You see, the narrow gate and the hard way is to repent of anger at the heart level. It is is to say it's not good enough just that I don't murder people or hurt people or lash out at people violently. It's at a heart level so even those subtle little manipulations that I do are not acceptable. Those subtle little ways that I retaliate against people and get back at them. Jesus is calling me to turn from all of that. He's calling me to show genuine love and to serve those who have sinned against me, those who annoy me, those who have manipulated me. I am to turn and love them. That is a wide, that is a narrow gate, that is a hard way. Like a wide gate and an easy way would be to say, hey, I can do with my sexuality as I please as long as the other person consents. And Jesus calls us to something far deeper, far harder. He's calling us to a purity of heart that would say the only way I will exercise sexuality is in a committed relationship between a man and a woman. And that rubs up against married couples too because it said, I'm not cheating on my spouse. I haven't slept with anybody else. But Jesus says, how's your heart? Are you pure in heart, or are you giving yourselves to daydreaming about other people? You see, the wide gate and the easy way would be to say, hey, I forgive people for my own sake. It's about my emotional health. It's about just me unburdening myself, and then I just move on. Jesus calls us to something far deeper, far greater. Jesus calls us to pursue reconciliation, to bear that painful cost of being sinned against, and seeking for reconciliation. See, the wide gate and the easy way would be to say, you know what, there's a lot of idiots and jerks out there who need to be judged and confronted, and I'm going to speak my mind and let people have it. Force and aggression, these are what fix the brokenness in our world. And Jesus is after something deeper, much more difficult. See, the narrow gate and the hard way is to recognize that the meek will inherit the earth. The Lord will execute judgment. He will execute vengeance upon evil. And so we exercise humble, sober judgment. We're mindful of our hearts. We walk in active repentance so we can see clearly. And when we do judge, we're making wise judgments. 
the wide gate and the easy way would be to say, hey, my time and my money are precious to me. I work hard to build financial security for myself and my family. I give, I give some to the church and others, and I use my time for good things and important things. But Jesus is after something far deeper, far more important. Jesus is calling us to give sacrificially and generously of our time and our money. He's calling us into pursuing the kingdom of God and things that last eternally. Finally, the wide gate and the easy way would be to say, hey, I don't harm other people. I stay out of other people's way. I just kind of live my life and I try to do the best I can and I'm good. I mind my own business. Oh, but the narrow gate and the hard way is to show mercy, to proactively love other people, to care about the brokenness in our world, to seek to bless others with the kingdom that you may experience more of the kingdom and not to give in to fear and anxiety when you give your life away to Christ because you trust that your Father is good and has good things for you. And so here it is worth asking, where are you tempted to step off the difficult path? Where are you tempted to walk through the wide gate and the easy path? Where are you tempted to say, I'm going to stop here, Jesus. I'm not going to go any further because it's too hard. It it costs too much. There's too much difficulty here. Where are you tempted? Where are you still holding on to baggage? Where are you still holding on to anger or lust or selfishness and pride? Where are you still holding on to the security of wealth? Where are you trying to earn your own status through your good works? Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Take the difficult path. Let go of the baggage. This is a command, and it's also a call to life. Because there's an incredible promise for us. Like Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 25, whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. The, the, the end of the narrow gate and the hard path is life. So when we let go of our baggage, when we walk that hard path, it leads us to life. Yes, it feels like death. Because we're giving up so much of ourselves. We're dying to our selfishness. We're dying to our sin. But the end of all of that is life. Jesus is calling us into something deep and rich and beautiful. Oh, it's a narrow gate, but it's a gate of promise. It is a hard path, but that is a path of promise. Life, eternal life, the end of that. So enter through that gate. Walk that path the difficulty of discipleship. Now, the danger of deception. A following Jesus is a narrow, difficult path. And what that means is the temptation to deviate will be significant. The temptation to choose another path will be in front of us regularly. We feel this temptation. I feel this temptation. This is something that is regularly there. And into that temptation steps those who want to teach false things, to pull us away from Christ, to deceive us away from Jesus. And make no mistake, as Jesus points out, the deception will be very strong because appearances are deceiving. And, and, and let, me, let me make a side note here as we, we enter into what this, this passage. There, there's two types of deception and false teaching. There's the deception and false teaching of ignorance, and there's the deception and false teaching of willful rebellion. 
Like there are brothers and sisters in Christ that teach false things because they just don't know any better and they need to be discipled. And so we need to confront that and we need to love them, but they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there are those who are willfully teaching wrong things no matter the correction that comes. That is what Jesus has in mind here. So we're focusing on willful rebellion here. So I want to keep those categories in mind because sometimes we treat the brother and sister like the false teacher. So we need to be careful of that. So just caveat that everything here filters through, this person really is a false teacher. This person really is a false teacher. Okay, we good? All right. So deception will be strong first because appearance of godliness and faithfulness to Christ will seem legitimate. So Jesus tells his disciples, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, false teachers and their false teaching, they will have the appearance that they belong. They, they, will, they will know the lingo. They'll know the word gospel. They'll know the word salvation. They'll know about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. They'll know scripture. They'll know all the right words. Outwardly, they will appear very moral. They'll, they'll appear like they're walking with Christ and following him. And so outwardly, they look just like a believer. They will say, Lord, Lord, claiming to know Christ. The deception will also be strong because of the appearance of good teaching and some level of spiritual skill. Consider what Jesus says to the false prophets at the last day, or what they, what they say to Jesus at the last day. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So these false teachers that Jesus is describing, they were prophesying, meaning they were teaching things about Christ. They were, they were casting demons out in the name of Jesus. So they were caring for souls, spiritually speaking. Casting out demons, caring for people in the name of Christ. And they were doing mighty works all in the name of Christ. This is a startling statement. Look, they're not practicing witchcraft. They're not practicing the occult. They're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They're doing things in the name of Jesus. And so false teachers will come with a teaching that seems good, it seems like it lines up with what Jesus taught. They will come with a level of spiritual skill and ability to care for people. And that will give them some success. Like it'll appear like they're actually helping people. And you'll look at that and go, hey, that person's actually good at that. They must be legit. And, and there will be other demonstrations that seem, hey, God has stamped them with his approval. They have a level of authority. They have some fruitfulness. And yet, it will be deceptive. It will be the appearance that God has given them some kind of authority and power. But it's not true. Because despite the appearance of godliness, despite the appearance of being a part of the church and part of the family of God, despite the appearance of teaching about Christ truly, despite the appearance of skill and spiritual authority and power, Jesus says that these teachers are ravenous wolves, meaning they are purposely out to wreck your faith. They are after you. This isn't ignorant, just ham-handed spiritual counsel. This is intentional and purposeful. People trying to wreck your faith, pull you away from Jesus, to, to bit by bit cause you not to put your full faith and trust and loyalty and allegiance to Christ. And so their deception is a front their deception is intended to get you to believe that they belong, so you'll drop your guard. 
So you will trust them. So you will listen to them. So you will treat them like a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus says, take care, beware. So we must be intentional. We, we, we must judge righteously, must judge wisely. So what do we look for? How, how, how do we discern whether or not someone is teaching truly what Christ taught? How do we understand what a false teacher does? Well, this is where the Sermon on the Mount again guides us. Because here's what all false teaching has in common. No matter the flavor, no matter the style. All false teaching ultimately undermines the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. Like all false teaching in one flavor or another will try to get you to doubt or step away from complete and total trust and obedience to Jesus. And what does the Sermon on the Mount teach us? It teaches us what absolute obedience to Christ looks like. It teaches us what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom living under his rule. So when you move away from the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it's a step in the direction of false teaching. And so we, we gauge and we sort of calibrate based on what Christ has taught us. And I'm going to paint with a little bit of a broad brush here rather than focusing on maybe some specific false teachers or teaching. And, and the reason I want to do it a little bit more broadly is because I want to equip us broadly. I want to give us some categories that no matter sort of the, the flavor and the nature of the false teaching, we can detect it. It'll allow us to to think well and think broadly about what we're hearing and what we're allowing our hearts to be moved by. And so there are two categories. There's teaching and there's lifestyle. What people teach and how they live. And so false teaching can come in very obvious forms. Sometimes it's just blatantly obvious. Bright colors. People outright deny the lordship or the deity of Christ. People outright deny that salvation is by grace through faith. People outright deny the authority of Scripture. People outright deny the morality of sexual ethics in Scripture. That's obvious to us. Most false teachers don't come that obvious, at least not right away. Most false teachers are going to paint in much subtler tones. They're going to look for ways to slowly, bit by bit, undermine. And there's two categories of false teaching that we can kind of put all false teaching under. And so again, kind of broad brush here. First category, the teaching that we aren't really that bad. Meaning, minimizing our condition. Minimizing how bad the situation is. Well, they're not going to outright deny that we're sinners. They're not going to outright deny that something's wrong with us because you can't do that. (laughs) I mean, our world is broken and it's obvious. But you can say, well, poverty of spirit, that doesn't mean you are spiritually bankrupt completely unable to save yourself, that just means you're weak. That just means you need a little help. That just means you need Jesus to kind of give you a pick-me-up and kind of help you with some good wisdom and some good advice. You know, with the right behavior management, with the right tools, with the right process, with the right skill set, you'll be okay. And so it pulls us away from our absolute need of Jesus. And it sounds so inviting because... Christ does transform our lives. Christ does call us into greater righteousness and goodness. But these false teachers are going to get us to believe that the pathway to that is not desperate and absolute need of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, but through just the right kind of help me list. And so it's always pushing on behavior transformation rather than going at the heart and our desperate need. 
So that's the first category. The second category, Jesus really didn't mean fill in the blank. So doesn't outright deny the authority of Scripture, but bit by bit starts to sand down the edges of Jesus' call to his disciples. Let's, let's widen the path a little bit. Let's make that gate just a little bit bigger. And so it's never outright, oh, don't listen to Scripture. But it comes across like, hey, Jesus, he really wants you to be happy. Jesus was after happiness. He said blessed, right? Happiness. So it's okay to express your sexuality if it makes you happy. It's okay to express yourself in any way that really makes you happy. Hey, you know, yeah, you should love people. That, that, that's good. You know, caring about people, that, that's good. But, but the bar that Jesus set as far as loving your enemies, hey, let's not get carried away. Let's, let's not set that too high. Hey, yeah, it's, it's good to, to be neighborly. It's, it's good to, to, to show concern for other people. But, but to give your life away and, and to, to spread the kingdom into the darkness of our world, to sacrifice and to risk, hey, let's not get too carried away. Let's not set that bar too high. Jesus really didn't mean take up your cross and die to yourself. And so over and over, there's this push towards, hey, Jesus really didn't mean that. So we start to walk back just how radical Jesus' call is to us. Have you heard any of these messages? Have, have you heard anybody, hey, you know, you have a right to be angry. You, you have a right to lash out to people. They deserve that. You know, you work hard for your money. You, you deserve a life of comfort and pleasure. Hey, you, you, you give enough to the church. It's okay. Or, or you give enough of your time. It's okay. And so walking back, walking back, the things that Jesus taught. Walking back and making it just a little bit easier, a little less need to depend on the Holy Spirit, a little less Jesus really didn't mean. And so we're left with a teaching that really doesn't require the Holy Spirit, doesn't require transformation, doesn't require desperate need for Jesus, doesn't require us to give our lives to the kingdom of God. Oh, we can live comfortably we, we, can, we can sort of tack Jesus on and fit him onto our agenda and be okay. Notice how all false teaching will tempt us toward the wide gate and the easy path. Be suspicious of anything that takes the edge off what Jesus said. Make no mistake, our salvation is by grace through faith alone. It starts there, it ends there. We're not saved by our works. But Jesus calls us into a new life, and that new life comes through faith in him. Next is lifestyle. It's not just teaching, though. It's lifestyle. And again, some false teachers will be dramatic hypocrites. Like, they'll, they'll front up on stage or in front of people like they're righteous, but behind the scenes, they're living wickedness, outright indulgence of sin. But more often, it comes a little more subtly. It looks more like they're teaching. And so what they present seems to be very moral. What they present seems to be in line with what Jesus taught. But underneath all of that is a heart that is not completely given to Christ. It's not given to Christ at all. 
So their Midwestern work ethic is good enough. Their, their being a decent, honest person is sufficient. Like they, they will present in many ways as a very moral, good person, but there's no drive and desire and push to know Jesus more. There, there's, there's no resting and, and there, there's no hungering for God. There, there's no desire to see the kingdom of God go forward. Like the way that they live their life is very much on the surface of things. Like they're not pressing deeper. They're not going after Christ. They're not sacrificing. They're not risking. They're not giving themselves toward Jesus. And so their morality is merely a set of human rules. Oh, look, they, they, they'll apologize, but they'll never repent. They'll never c- c- cultivate a desire for Christ's glory. They're not hostile to Christ, but they're not hungry for him either. And so for all their talk and teaching and spiritually successful work, all their good advice, how oh, they don't know Christ. They're walking through the wide gates and they're on the easy path. And because discipleship is much caught as taught, they'll lead people the same direction. And so we got to beware of those who don't, when you get underneath all the veneer, there's not a love for Jesus. There's not a push towards Jesus. Now look, it's very easy to point the finger at other people too. But you need to ask yourself, is that where you are? Like, like it's very easy, especially in our context, to, to sort of deceive ourselves into thinking we belong to Christ. I know this is a hard word, but, but it needs to be said. We live in a, in a context that's not hostile to the church. And it's very easy for us to just kind of go through the motions and assume, hey, I go to church. I don't, I'm not hostile to Jesus. But do you have a hunger for him? Do you have a desire for him? I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying you don't wrestle. I'm not saying you don't still sin and struggle. But underneath all of that, is there a longing for Jesus Christ and his glory? Is there a longing for the kingdom? Do you cry out, God, save me? Because if underneath all of that isn't a longing and a heart for Christ, you have to ask yourself, do I belong to him? And if the teaching you're listening to never pushes you further, you have to ask yourself, does this really line up with what Christ taught. Now, here's a question we should ask from this passage. How is it possible for false teachers to prophesy in the name of Christ, cast out demons in the name of Christ, and perform these mighty acts in the name of Christ successfully and not belong to him? This is a scary part of this passage because this is what this means. God is so jealous for his glory that sometimes he'll even use false teachers Like God is sovereign over the work in this world and sometimes he will use false teachers. Never forget, Judas cast out demons. People that are associated with the church, sometimes God will use them in spite of the fact that they're false teachers and don't belong to him. So your spiritual success, your great works for God, the way you can resonate with people, your gifting doesn't guarantee you belong to God doesn't guarantee that teachers belong to God. We can look and say, look at the success of that. They seem to be really good with people. They must have some some blessing on them. Not necessarily. It's it's not the gifting. It's not the work. God isn't impressed with that. As John the Baptist said, God could raise up rocks to do what we do. It's whether or not your heart is oriented to Christ. This is what Jesus has been getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Your heart, your heart, your heart. And so we cannot put our trust, we cannot put our confidence 
in spiritual success or great works or gifting. Jesus says, I never knew you. All that show of power and you completely missed me. You're lawbreakers, meaning you're not faithfully following me because I don't have your heart. And ultimately, false teaching and false teachers, they're going to be exposed because the fruit of their teaching and the fruit of their life will show to be worthless and powerless. Jesus says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So for all the fronting, all the posturing, all the skill set, all the gifting, what kind of fruits is being produced? Jesus says for these false teachers, it will be rotten, it will be worthless, meaning it will have no power, it will have no lasting value. There's no true transformation, there's no true godliness being produced. Their teaching and their lifestyle ultimately produces spiritually worthless fruit. All the appearance may be there, but the truth of the thing is that it is worthless. Look, you can't go to a thorn bush and grab grapes. Can't go to to weeds and hope to pull off good fruits. You can't overcome your nature on your own. If you do not belong to Christ, then the fruit that comes out of you will not be spiritually fruitful. It will not be good fruits. It is only when we're united to Christ, it's only when we belong to him that we are spiritually fruitful. It's only when we are united to him that the work that comes out of us is glorifying to him. And so we need to be paying attention. We need to be paying attention to our life. We need to be paying attention to the the teaching that we hear. What kind of fruit is it producing? What kind of fruit is that person producing that you're listening to? And what kind of fruit are is produced being produced in your life? Oh, is it the fruit of deeper loyalty to Christ? Is it the fruit of deeper love and hunger for him? Is it the fruit of deeper repentance and trust? Is it the fruit of deeper commitment and trust in his word? Is it deeper mercy and love and sacrifice and generosity towards others? Oh, is there a greater desire being birthed in you to see the kingdom of God? Oh, do you have a greater desire to live out the Sermon on the Mount? Are you being moved towards Christ? Is the teaching you listen to moving you towards Christ? Are the people that you're learning from and being discipled, are they moving towards Christ? Do you see that fruit coming out of them? This fruit only comes by doing the will of God. And as Jesus says, uh, he says that in verse 21, and as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of God and believes in him should have eternal life. It starts and ends with true faith in Christ, submitting completely to his lordship, with paying Jesus lip service or tacking him on as a decorative figure within your kingdom and your agenda while your heart is far from him. It does not matter how much success you have. It doesn't matter how good you are. The question is, do you belong to him? And here's the great promise for us, though. Christ is so much better 
Christ is so much better than any false teaching, any hope they can offer us. There is greater mercy, greater joy, greater love, greater forgiveness in Christ than in any false teaching we could ever listen to. There is greater hope in Jesus Christ than anything else we could listen to. Like following Christ and giving your life away to the kingdom of God is to know a greater joy and a greater peace and a greater sense of purpose and satisfaction than you will ever know chasing anything else. And so there is a deep warning here. But that warning should push us to something greater, push us to Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And so church, let's embrace the narrow gate and the hard path. Despite its difficulty, it's the path to life, the path to joy, the path to peace, the path to love and forgiveness and redemption. Oh, it's the path where we find the kingdom purpose and deep relationship with God. Let's guard from false teaching that would deceive us away from Christ. Now, I'm not saying let's all be suspicious of each other and spy on each other like people in communist countries. But let's be intentional. Let's let's be intentional in our own hearts and intentional with one another. See, if we're intentional to continue to grow in our knowledge of Christ, grow in our love of Christ, grow in our knowledge of his word, grow in discipling one another, caring for one another, grow in our taking the gospel to this world to see the kingdom of God go forward, then we're going to properly guard. We're going to properly be aware of false teaching. And so let's commit ourselves to the call of Christ and we will guard well our own hearts and the church. Amen.